I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the chapter that we read at the beginning, namely the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis in verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. And the Lord said, I will destroy men whom I have created from the face of the earth, both men and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the earth, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It is my intention really to deal with this great and important incident, the account of which in part is found here in this sixth chapter of this book of Genesis. I want, I say, to look at the incident as a whole in order that we may learn the great message, the vitally important message which it has to teach us. What is the cause of the trouble? And the second question is, what can be done about it? Now, mankind is very concerned about this problem. At least those who think at all are, and I think the majority do. But unfortunately, they keep their eyes on a certain level only, and they refuse to consider the message of this book. The Bible is a book that comes to speak to us about life itself. It is because they fail to realize that the people are not interested in it. Religion is regarded as a kind of subject, a matter of interest for people who are moved and drawn in that direction. I remember once attending a conference, not in this country nor in this continent, but in another continent, I attended a conference where I was asked to be the chaplain for the week, and I found that uh, in the almost endless list of subjects that they claimed to teach and to deal with in that conference, religion was item number 16. There are many who think of it, I say, in that way. They came there to study literature, they came there to study art, they came there to study music. Well, there were still a few people left who wanted to study religion. And the others, of course, were not interested. Now, there are many, I say, who take that view. That it's uh, one of these uh, theoretical matters you can take it up, if you like, as a hobby. People have all sorts and kinds of hobbies, and this is one of them. And the view that is taken is that uh, the number who are interested in that way uh, uh, is becoming smaller uh, year by year. But there are still some. But for the vast majority, this, of course, is outdated, outmoded. It's got nothing to say. It's completely irrelevant. Well, now, we are starting uh, from this basis that not only is this book relevant, but that finally it alone is relevant. We've been spending five Sunday evenings before this on the third chapter of this book of Genesis. And our whole object there was to show that you really don't begin even to understand the nature of the problem of the modern world until you accept the message of the third chapter of Genesis. For there and there alone is the real explanation. 
Try all the other explanations if you like, and you'll find every one of them to be inadequate. Here is an explanation that really fits the facts. Man is as he is, and the world is as it is, because of man's disobedience of God. It's man's rebellion against God. It's man setting himself up as the authority and spurning the vice divine. That led to some terrible consequences immediately. We've been considering them. The consequences are still with us. It's an accurate description of life today. Very well, there it is. Man has brought his misery upon himself. And he's in a state of helplessness and hopelessness. He put himself deliberately, voluntarily, under the dominion of his arch enemy and the arch enemy of God, the devil, Satan, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the earth. That's what men did. And he's remained in that bondage ever since. And he can do nothing about it. He's tried throughout the centuries. But he's never succeeded. He never will. But thank God it's just there. The message of this book comes in. That in spite of all this, God is still concerned. The God who looked at Adam and Eve after they had sinned and had fallen, and who came down into the garden to speak to them, is still the same God. That's the message of this book. He came down, you remember. He pronounced judgment upon them and their sin. He showed them the consequences that had to follow, but he didn't stop at that. He offered them a program. He showed them a way out. He was going to introduce a way of salvation. He's going to set enmity, he says, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's going to be a mighty warfare in which the serpent's head is going to be bruised and the seed of the woman is going to receive a wound in his heel. Now that's the whole essence of the Christian gospel. And we found it there, away back in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. But that's only the beginning. The Bible doesn't end at the third chapter of Genesis. It goes on, and we've got this mighty volume. What's it all about? Well, it's just further history. It is, as I tried to show in a hurried summary, a week tonight. It's the account of the outworking of this plan of God. It's just uh, the subsequent record of what God has proceeded and has continued to do with men and women. And here we come in this sixth chapter of Genesis to another remarkable incident. After what we've been considering, uh, there seems to be an interval in which God uh, appeared to be doing very little. God seemed to have left men to himself. He allowed men to go on living in his own way, as it were. There wasn't very much direct intervention. It went on like that for large numbers of years. But then suddenly comes this incident. God's intervening again. God's going to do something again. The God who came down into the garden is again addressing men. He's again speaking. Now, I want to try to show you this evening that that is the pattern of God's dealing with mankind ever since the fall of men. And it's vital, it seems to me, that we should be clear about this. Because, as I'm suggesting, 
It is the only way to understand history. You see, the Bible is a book of history. That's what makes it so practical. It does record the actual history of individual men, of nations. It shows you the thing in detail, and especially in this light. How God was overruling it all, how God was bringing things to pass. In other words, you cannot really understand the history of the world in which you live unless you accept the teaching of this book. And it's continued right away along. And you can't even understand the history of mankind and of the world since the end of the Bible, in other words, since the end of the New Testament canon, until tonight, unless you accept the great principles that are laid down here. God has got a method of dealing with men. And it is still the same method. Here we are meeting on an armistice Sunday. And we are thinking about wars. We've had two of them in this century. We've gone through a terrible and a trying period. And still the whole situation is problematical and uncertain. And the question we all are asking is, why are things like this? Why must they be like this? What is the matter? What can be done about it? Now I say, you are familiar with the other answers? We get them put before us in the newspapers and in the journals, day by day and week by week and month by month and in the quarterlies. There it is, we are familiar with it all. I ask you, are you satisfied with what they're saying? Does it seem a sufficient answer? Does it hold out any hope for you? Well, I'm asking you to consider tonight this message from God. It isn't my message. It isn't my theory. I don't come here to give you the result of my deliberations and cogitations. No, no, I try in simplicity to expound this book, this message. It's my only authority. I know nothing about God ultimately apart from what this tells me. I believe that I can deduce God from nature and creation. I happen to believe these proofs of the being and the existence of God, but they're not enough for me. I can't arrive at any knowledge of the character of God from creation. I can, as Paul reminds the Romans, uh, discover something about his eternal power and creatorship. But I'll never get to know him that way. That brings me to an unknown God. But if I'm to understand history and myself and to have any hope, I must come to know God and I have no knowledge of God apart from that which I find in this where God has been pleased to reveal himself, his character, his person, his purposes, his ideas, his activities. It's all here, given in words, given through prophets. He sent his own son to do it. That's the message. You see, this book is all about life and all about the world as it is at this minute. Very well. Here then I say we come across this pattern. God seems to leave the world alone and to itself for long periods. And then he makes himself manifest. He does something. He intervenes. He speaks. He does things. And the Bible is the record of all that. Now here we've got one illustration and example of all that this evening in this sixth chapter of this book of Genesis. 
And the message is, I say, that God is still the same. That though he may appear to be silent, he's still there, and his purpose is still sure and absolutely certain. Uh, he makes it particularly clear at these critical periods, but it's there all the same at the other times. The critical periods are there to call attention to it. They are the signposts that God himself sets up. And he does it in his love and in his compassion. For we are all very dull. And we all are so ready to forget that God has to remind us in a forcible manner. He has to indicate and point the way. So here we have these tremendous incidents like the flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the captivity of Babylon, certain climactic events. They stand out in this record, in this history. They're all, in a sense, exactly the same. They all have the same message. They teach exactly the same thing. And nothing is more important for us than that we should learn the lesson which they bring to us. Now then, what is the lesson of the flood? I'm not going to detain you tonight to argue with you as to whether this is history or not. I believe it is. And I can give you my reasons and my arguments. I am familiar with everything that's been said against it. I've read it. I've considered it. I nevertheless assert that this is history. And if I had no other reason for asserting that, let me just give you one I would believe that this is history were it merely for the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ himself said it was history. He referred to it. I'm going to remind you of his teaching in a minute. So that if you reject this as history, well then you are left with the problem of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you reject this as history at that particular peril. You see, you can't play fast and loose with these early chapters of Genesis. It isn't quite as simple as some people seem to think. They say, of course, we no longer believe that. Science has proved this and that. Science, of course, has proved nothing. What they really mean is that certain scientists have said so-and-so, which is a very different thing. And that's pure theory and supposition. They can't prove anything at all with regard to whether this is history or not. I say... What they don't realize is this. You cannot hold on to Jesus Christ and the gospel if you reject this because he believed this. Literal history. And the whole of this salvation which the Bible has to offer is historical. You can't reject the facts, the history. It is not an immaterial question, therefore, as to whether this is history or any of the other illustrations it is as material as it is to know that Jesus of Nazareth was born of a virgin, that he did literally work miracles, that he died and was buried but literally rose again in the body. The facts are absolutely vital. They're essential. I have no gospel apart from these facts. And the Bible makes a great deal of them. 
It tells us about the scoffers who laugh at them and who say, where is the promise of his coming? And so on. Well, let's go on then and see what this has to teach us. Fortunately, we're not left to ourselves with this matter. There are several references to this question of the flood in the New Testament, as I've just been saying. Our Lord himself referred to it on one occasion. You'll find it recorded in the Gospels. Take, for instance, the account in the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, where our Lord said this. He said, even as they were in the days of Noah, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and knew not until the flood came and carried them all away, even so shall they be in the days of the Son of Men, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage still. That's one reference. But then there is a reference to all this in the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews in that great gallery of the saints of the Old Testament. We read, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. There's another. And then you will find another reference to it in the first epistle of Peter, in the third chapter, where we are told that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified in the flesh, but raised in the spirit, in which also we are told he went and preached to the spirits that are in prison, that disobeyed in the time of Noah at the flood. And then he goes on to compare the Christian salvation to the ark that saved Noah and his family. There's another reference to it. And there is a final reference to it in the second epistle of Peter in the third chapter, where the apostle takes up this whole question of the scoffers who are then saying, where is the promise of the coming of the Lord? You've preached to us, they say, and uh, you've told us that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the world. Well, where is he? Years are passing and he doesn't seem to come. Ah, they said, you can't frighten us. We don't believe that kind of teaching. Where is the promise? Ah, says Peter, wait a minute. They were like that, he says, in the days of the flood. When Noah preached to them, they laughed at him and ridiculed him. They scorned him, but the flood came. And then he goes on to say, yes, it's coming. The judgment is coming. It won't be a flood the next time. God promised at the beginning he'd never drown the world again. He's given a sign of that in the rainbow in the heavens. But though he'll never drown the earth, he will deal with sin. There will be a judgment. The elements shall burn and melt with fervent heat. There is that final cataclysm to come. Now then, you see, in the light of all these comments in the New Testament, we can go back to this ancient history and consider its message. What is it? Well, I would divide it like this. There is a general message and a particular message. I'm not going to stay with the general, but I must note it in passing. Here is the first statement. All calamities are due to sin. God made the world perfect. He placed men in paradise. And if men had obeyed, it would have continued like that. 
there would never have been a calamity. There would never have been a war. There would never have been anything to disturb the even tenor of their ways and their enjoyment of life and of God. Calamities have come in as the result of sin. Are we all clear about that, I wonder? Why are there such things as war? Is there anything more idiotic, more insane, more mad, more futile, more harmful to the lot of men? War always leads to endless trouble in every respect. Well, where does it all come from? It's a calamity. Where does it come from? The Bible tells you that it's come from sin. It was as the result of this entry of sin that Cain became jealous of his brother Abel and decided to murder him and to kill him. That's it. That's the thing. And it's still with us, isn't it? It's with us in all the relationships of life. And it leads to calamity. All calamity is the result of sin. It would never have come but for sin. A second principle that seems to me equally clear is this. That God sometimes brings the calamity upon men as a punishment of sin. That's the whole message of this incident of the flood. It is God himself who decides to do this. He says, and behold... I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth. God deliberately decided and determined to do so because of the conditions which prevailed. Now, here is an important point, a very important principle. God doesn't always do that. As I have said, there seem to be long epochs and periods sometimes apparently lasting for a millennium and more, when God seems to tolerate things, allows them to take their course, doesn't seem to do anything about them, so that the scoffers say, where is your God? Can your God do anything? If he can, why doesn't he do it? You say he's almighty, but look, we've forgotten him, we've ignored him, we've lived our own lives, nothing happens to us. Everything's going well, and God seems to be silent. Yes, you see, as the psalmist puts it somewhere, thou thoughtest that God was just such another as thyself. You don't understand his ways. We don't understand it. God's ways are not our ways, neither his thoughts our thoughts. They're high as the heavens are above the earth, higher than our understanding. But he gives it, he gives us the teaching, we've got the revelation, and it seems to me to be this that God seems to allow things to go on like that until they reach a certain climax. And when they do, God acts. That's what he did here. We read a statement like this later on in this same book of, of Genesis, that God says he's not going to do anything until the iniquity of the Amorites is full or is fulfilled. Then he's going to act. You remember God's patience with the city of Nineveh, to which he sent the prophet Jonah. He'd waited, he'd postponed, he'd appealed, they did nothing. He allowed the time to pass, but then he acted in his own time. And of course, that is the great lesson of the Old Testament about the children of Israel. 
God had given them his laws and he told them that if they obeyed him that he would bless them but that if they disobeyed him he would punish them. Well the children of Israel began to sin and to disobey and they thought something was going to happen at once but it didn't happen. Ah, oh, they said it's all right. And on they went in sin and God sent a messenger to warn them. They paid no attention. They continued in sin. Another messenger still. They paid no attention. And at last they said it's all right. We can... Settle down upon our lees. It's all right. Let's be at ease in Zion. Nothing will ever go wrong with us. Then suddenly God acted. That's the message. It's the whole history of this Old Testament. And it comes to a terrifying climax in A.D. 70. In the destruction of Jerusalem. And the casting out of the nation of Israel and its people amongst the nations of the world. Now then there I say is the principle. That though God doesn't always act at once, he will act, but in his own time. And then the third general principle is this one. That every one of these individual single calamities in history is nothing but a picture of the final calamity. Every one of them is designed to reveal that Every one of them points on. This isn't my theory again. It's the teaching of the Bible itself. What is proclaimed is this. That God will punish sin. I'm sorry my friends. But I say again I'm not here to say what I like or what I think. This is the whole message of the Bible. That God is just and holy and righteous and pure. And God will punish sin. I don't hesitate with reverence to put it like this. God must punish sin. He cannot deny himself. He cannot go back on his own nature and on his own character. And God and sin are eternal incompatibilities. So God pronounces that he must punish it. And punish it he will. And he will punish it in the individual. He will punish it in groups. He will punish the whole world in sin. That's the general message. Let me say something about the particular. Why does God punish sin? Well, the answer is God punishes sin because what it leads to, what it produces. You notice that here God pronounces that he is going to punish the world and he's going to destroy that ancient world. Why? Well, here's the answer in the fifth verse. And God saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's why God did it. That is the thing that always produces the punishment of God. He saw that the wickedness of the earth was great. Don't misunderstand me, my friends. I'm not standing here in this pulpit tonight to suggest to you or to teach 
that I believe that what we've got here in the sixth chapter of Genesis is an exact description of the world today. It may be, it may be. God knows the world is much too much like this at this present moment. I'm not standing here to say that the end of the world is at hand. I don't know. It may be. I can't say it isn't. I can't say it is. I'm not to understand the times and the seasons. All I know is that there is going to be an end. And I find this principle in the scripture. That God tolerates iniquity, I say, until it reaches a certain climax. And then he does things. I simply ask you to face the evidence seriously and soberly. It was when God saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth, he did this. He saw also that every thought of the imagination of men's heart was only evil continually, which means this. That men and women not only did things that were wrong, they delighted in them. They boasted of them. It wasn't merely in practice, it was in the heart, in the imagination, in the mind. You know, there are times in the history of the world when men have been evil in practice, but they don't seem to have been devilish in their minds to the extent that they've been at other times. But at this time, as someone once put it, the world had reached a new low in iniquity. Their very minds were fiendish. They perverted all their powers and faculties simply to gloat and to revel in sin. Their literature, as it were, became vile. Have you noticed what's happening to modern literature? There's always sin in the world. There was a great deal of sin in the world a hundred years ago, in the Victorian period. People then committed acts of sin. There was drunkenness. There was immorality. Yes, but I think you'll all agree there was a striking difference between the world then and the world now. When you look into the realm of the mind and the imagination, don't you see the difference? Take it, for instance, in the matter of novels. Have you noticed the striking difference between Victorian novels and the 20th century novels? You hadn't all that psychoanalysis and all that filth then. A novel was more romantic. But something new's come in. The imagination, the mind, the thinking, the heart, everything's going down. Music is debased. It's becoming primitive and suggestive. It's no longer clean as it was. Everything is perverted and twisted. It's happening in literature. It's happening in art. Compare the art of a hundred years ago with that of today. What is this new thing that's come in? Isn't it the imagination and the mind and the heart that are becoming evil continually? That's the sort of thing that happened at the time of the flood. Iniquity and evil and wickedness and vice were rampant. Well, let me go on to what we are told in the 11th verse. There I read something like this. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Corrupt. Polluted. Foul and tarnished. Oh, it doesn't take much imagination to see what it means, does it? You'll get a description of the same thing 
In the second half of Paul's first chapter of his epistle to the Romans, there have been other times it was like that at Sodom and Gomorrah. Corrupt, sunk low, and full of violence, you notice. Which refers not only to murder and theft and robbery with violence, but people being attacked innocently, violence in the manifestation of lust and passion and, uh, and, and such ideas, this violent element, I ask again, isn't this far too much in evidence in this modern world? The world is much more violent than it was 50 years ago. There has always been violence, but not in this sense, not in this widespread sense. The whole of, of life is becoming loud and harsh and cruel and angry. There's a violence about men. He doesn't fight as he used to. He must have some mighty bomb now that will kill thousands, perhaps millions at a time. Violence! Here it is. There it was. But you see, the trouble with it all is that it's before God. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. This is the essence of sin. It was all happening before God, but the world ignored God. It says there is no God, and if there is a God, well, it doesn't matter. He can't do anything, he is quite helpless, he hasn't got any power at all, and they lived like that under the very eye of God, and they went on doing it, with God looking down upon them. And they didn't believe that, and they didn't know that. Those are the conditions in which God acts. Those are the kind of conditions that lead to calamities. It is when the world is like that that everything goes wrong and men and women are alarmed and terrified and begin to ask, what's going to happen next? But let us not forget that when our Lord spoke about the time before the flood, what he said about it was this. There they were, he said, marrying and giving, eating and drinking. Planting and sowing, marrying and giving in marriage, and knew not until the flood came. You see what he's describing? A purely materialistic outlook. Eating and drinking, planting and sowing, exactly. Marrying and giving in marriage. This is the only life, this is the only world. Very well, then, let's get the maximum out of it. Let's live for it entirely. Don't talk about God, don't talk about eternity, don't talk about death, don't talk about judgment. Just live for the present. Doesn't matter what's happening. Eating and drinking, planting and sighing, enjoyments, happiness, that's the thing, isn't it? And it's the order of the day today. They were like that before the flood, says our Lord, and that's why God visited them. They were living purely on the earthly level. They only thought of themselves, and they lived for themselves. That's what they wanted. Plenty to eat, plenty to drink. Let's get more money that we may be able to do it. Then let's have our enjoyments. Doesn't matter what happens. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Let us eat, drink, and be merry. I'm not applying this to the age in which we live. I'm leaving that to you. 
I cannot but note the terrible, terrible and terrifying parallel. The apparent utter concern, unconcern of men and women, in spite of what we've already experienced. Wouldn't you have thought on general principles that two world wars would have sobered mankind? That they would have forced men to stop and say, well now, we can't go on like this, there must be something wrong somewhere. Where is it? But are they doing that? Do the wireless and the television programs suggest that they're doing it? It's only just over ten years since the last world war ended with a terrible and horrifying atomic bomb. And yet men and women tonight are thinking above everything else about eating and drinking and having their supposed good time and laughing at the jokes of the comedians. How funny it all is. Things are going well. Let's enjoy ourselves. The money's coming in. People are warning us, what's a warning? Why listen to that? Why be a spoil spot? Let's carry on eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, planting and sowing. It's the same mentality. Precisely the same. Well, those, I say, are the conditions which lead God to action. And then God, having seen all this, he warns, he speaks. Listen to what he said. God said, my spirit shall not always strive with men, for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. What's it mean? Well, that's God's warning to men in this condition. That is God saying to men, look here, I'm not going to restrain you much longer. I'm not going to tolerate this much longer. He says, I'll give you another 120 years, and then unless you've repented, I'll act. The narrative, the record, puts it in what's called an anthropomorphism, which means this, that when God speaks to us, he's in a way that we can understand. So he says, it hath repented me. God doesn't repent. God doesn't change his mind. Why the term? Well, he wants us to understand it. This is his way of pronouncing judgment. He expresses his opinion on men. He expresses abhorrence and detestation of their living. So God warns, and God always warns. He warns us individually, as he warns the whole world. You've got that within you which is called the conscience and it warns you every time. When you're confronted by temptation, it speaks, it warns. You've never sinned without being warned, never. You've been told of the consequences and yet you did it. God always warns before he strikes. And the Bible is nothing but a great book of warning. It's a warning to the individual, I say, and it's a warning to the whole world that this righteous God is going to judge us one by one and judge the whole world in righteousness by that man whom he hath appointed his own Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved friend, have you heard the word of warning? Are you happy to go on living as you are and to ignore this message? May I quietly remind you this evening, Armistice Day, which reminds us of our mortality, which reminds us of death and the brief span which we spend of our existence in this world. My dear friend, 
You are going out of this world. Where are you going? To what are you going? God, I say, warns you. He warns you in the record of the flood. He warns you in the whole teaching. You've got to stand before him and he'll judge you in righteousness. He warned these people. And in warning he called them to repentance. He told Noah to build that ark. It was a tremendous enterprise. And it took Noah about 120 years to build it. And there he began and people said, what are you doing men? And he said, God is going to judge the world unless we all repent. He's going to drown the world. And he has told me to build an ark to save myself and my family. And they thought it was the funniest joke they'd ever heard. Monstrous. And they came back to him in ten years' time and they said, you still believe that? No. Ten years have gone, nothing's happened. On they went, twenty, thirty, forty, hundred, hundred and ten, hundred and nineteen. It's really very amusing, isn't it? Noah preached to them by building the ark. He preached to them in words. He is described in the second chapter of the second epistle of Peter in the fifth verse as a preacher of righteousness. I've already quoted to you what Peter says in his first epistle in the third chapter. He says Christ himself in the Spirit was preaching through Noah to those people before the flood. Noah warned them. He said, God has spoken to me. God is going to destroy the world unless you repent. Repent, believe him. He did repent himself. He did believe. He built the ark. He carried it out in detail. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him. So did he. But the rest didn't. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And he called them to repentance. The flood is a warning. And it comes to a day. But alas, these people paid no heed and gave no attention. They went on eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, planting and sowing, and knew not. They just went on as if nothing were happening. They couldn't see the signs. They didn't believe Noah. They took no notice of the ark. And as I've already reminded you, it's the thing that alarms and terrifies my soul. To observe that these two horrible wars which we've endured have not even sobered people. They seem to have made no difference at all. The world is giving itself to pleasure more than ever. Never has this country been so self-satisfied. It's resting on its lees. It's folding its arms. It's having a marvelous boom. We're in a time of great prosperity. We must have our pleasures, whether we can afford them or not. We'll buy them on a higher purchase system, though we can't afford it. We must have it. We must enjoy it. Eating, drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. All the warnings ignored. All the vice of God spurned. But God carried out his judgment. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and knew not. Says the Son of God himself, until the flood came. 
and took them all away. The fact that you and I may ignore the warnings of God will make no difference to God's plan. The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small. A thousand years with God are but as one day, and one day as a thousand years. He seems to be asleep. Vast epochs pass, and God does nothing, and the world says he cannot do anything. But as the flood came, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. The children of Israel were conquered by their enemies, carried away captive. Eventually their city was destroyed and they were thrown out amongst the nations, I say. God is just warning us in all these things. And I believe he's warning us in this 20th century. By the state of the world, by the calamity of wars, he's allowed all this for us to see. He's reminding us of the final judgment which cannot be evaded, which no man will be able to avoid. The coming of Christ to judge the world in righteousness, which is as certain as the flood, as certain as the birth of Christ as a babe in Bethlehem, as certain as the resurrection. It's coming. It must come. It will come. It's God's pledged word that says it. And there is only one way of escape. It's here in the 8th verse. Listen, that's why I read verses 7 and 8 to you. And the Lord said, I will destroy men whom I have created from the face of the earth, both men and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made men, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and was not overwhelmed in the calamity, but was delivered and was made safe. He found grace. Why? Well, the answer is given in the ninth verse. We read this, Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. That's the secret. The one thing that marked this man out from all the rest was simply this. That he believed the word of God. Nothing else. God came to him and spoke to him and Noah believed him. That is why he is described as a preacher of righteousness. That's why the 11th chapter of Hebrews says that he became the heir of the righteousness which is by faith. It wasn't even his character that saved him. It was that he walked with God, which meant this, that he allowed God to lead him, that he went where God went, that he listened to God. He said yes to God. God spoke and Noah said, I believe. That is what saved him. And as the apostle Peter tells us, as that ark saved Noah from the waters of the flood, even so, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and being in him saves from the wrath to come at the final day of judgment of the whole world. Christ is the ark. Christ is the savior. Christ is the refuge. God has built his own ark for us. And we have but to enter in by faith. And we shall be safe 
when the world is burning and melting and all that is opposed to God is destroyed everlastingly out of his sight. It all comes to that then that we believe God. If you believe God tonight, the grace of God will deliver and will save you. And what God says, my friend, is just this. I'll put it in a phrase. God is telling us that our sinfulness deserves the very self-same punishment that he meted out to those people before the flood and will meet out at the end of the world. He pronounces judgment upon sin in every shape and form and we are all sinners before him. And there is but one way of escape, to believe that, to acknowledge it, to stop defending yourself, to stop trying to argue against it with your science or your knowledge or anything else. It is to believe the simple word of God as Noah did, the word about yourself as a sinner, and to confess it and acknowledge it, to repent before God, and to believe him further. When he tells you that he's prepared the ark for you, that he sent his only begotten son to bear your sins and their punishment, and that if you believe that and enter into him, your sins will be all blotted out, and you will be safe in life and safe in death and safe to all eternity. The world in sin is under condemnation, and the punishment will fall. Can it be said of you, but Noah, is that you? Are you covered by the but? Do you belong to Noah and his family? Are you a child of faith? Do you believe God? If you do, the but applies to you and the grace of God will redeem you and rescue you. And when the world is dissolving in the last calamity, you will be safe in the arms of Jesus and you will be beginning to enter upon a glory that shall never end. May God open our eyes to the message of the flood. Amen.